My name is Ziva and I'm a compulsive overeater. <coughs> and my story is a story of recovering from relapse and a story of progress, not perfection. And I'll give you two examples in real time, as in the last two days, of what I mean when I say progress, not perfection. So perfection was on Thursday when uh, there was a big celebration at my office with a lot of food. And this was the fourth celebration since the stay there last Friday. So I made a decision to bring a salad so that I will not be tempted and commit to what I'm going to eat from the party and bookend it, meaning texting my sponsor and before the party started, going to the bathroom and asking God to help me. And it worked and it was beautiful. That's perfection. Not perfection was last night when I ate five gluten-free matzahs. Okay? So, I dreamt last night that I'm standing in a room with hundreds of people. It was in my anxiety for today. And I, I see Don and I tell him about, about the five matzahs because he asked me to come here. And I don't remember him answering, but I turn around and there were five people sitting on a bench. And when I first woke up, I thought everybody left because they heard about the matzahs. And then I thought, you know what? Maybe there is another message. Maybe your message is for five people in the room. And if, if you can move five people and help them, then that's worth a hundred that can't relate. So, I'll go to the beginning. I was born into a very, very anxious, anxiety-provoking family. And from a very, very early age, I think my first memory is age three, going to a friend's house and they had this bread that there were few kids and everybody ate one piece. And I remember like being really anticipating whether I could have the second piece. So from a very early age, I used food to regulate my anxiety. And it worked. It worked beautifully. I would eat those two, three pieces and my anxiety will calm down. The problem is that as I grew older, I used more food to regulate the same anxiety. And I think it was about my teen years that I crossed the line from using food in a productive way, meaning to support my psychic, to abusing food in a way that started destructing my body. And basically, I did it until, you know, I did it my whole young life. And I, I will just give you an example of how it looked like, so that, you know, I know that when I hear shares, I like to hear it. So, you know, I would be in high school and I would go after school with my binge buddy and we would go and buy food in Tel Aviv. We would go and get falafel and then we would go and get pizza and then we would go and get ice cream. And then we would go to her house and, and cook a pot of pasta. And then we would lie on the bed in her, bed, in her room, like open our jeans because, and like, you know, be so uncomfortable and, and, and make like those promises that we will never do it again, but you know what happened next. And 
My story is not of dieting up and down, you know, I hear a lot of people share the yo-yo thing. Mine was more about binging and recovering. Binging and recovering. So my binges were so self-destructive that I needed a few days to recover. And when I recovered, I didn't eat a lot. So that's why, you know, that somehow balanced it. So in my late 20s, which is over 30 years ago, I joined program in Israel. And I must say that the program now is wonderful and strong, but at the time it was more like a club that accepted people that could relate to food addiction. So it was fun going to meetings, it was fun making friends, it was wonderful, but there was no spirituality, there was no steps. I mean, the first book that we chose to translate from Hebrew to English was Food for Thought, not the big book. So that just tells you, you know, where we were. And about a year after I joined the program, we immigrated to the United States. And I joined OA, and then shortly after I found out about, oh, I'll pass my pictures. And unfortunately, my pictures can be a little scary for newcomers, (laughs) because I came to program in a normal weight, and I gained and lost 100 pounds in OA. But I promise you that everything that I'm sharing is just my story. You'll go to other meetings and hear wonderful recovery that, that looks very differently. So I came to the United States, I found out about how, and I went to how, and I lost a lot of weight. And for those who don't know what how is, it's a very strict way of working the program, and it works beautifully for some people. But for me, it was a very punitive way, and even though I lost a lot of weight, I also gained a lot of weight. And I was married at the time to a man that when I was a hundred and 25 pounds, and you'll see a picture how I looked, he said to me, you know, if you lose five more pounds, you'll really look good. And later on, I found out that he's gay, and (laughs) I could never look like a gay boy. So I will close the loop, and again, the newcomers don't run away. 25 years later, I found out that I'm gay. So, that's not part of the package deal of recovery. So, so, promise. Okay, so I, so I gained and lost and gained and lost, and it was just a nightmare. And when I left Howe, I went through a period that my relapse was really horrible. I gained about 75 pounds. And my binges were morbid. They were so self-destructive that as a result I had a health problem and I just couldn't stop. (coughs) And at that time, I went out to therapy to find out where does this self-hate come from. And it says in the big book that if you need outside help, go and do it. So I went and I did it and I won't go into those details. It's irrelevant to the purpose of this meeting. However... This helped stop the binges because I really developed another level of compassion to that little girl in me that binged like that. And I was still not willing to become abstinent and to work the program. I lived in in three different states in the United States and I went to meetings everywhere and I was one of those 
that would go and hear an amazing speaker and then binge on the way home to celebrate their recovery. <laughs> and I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And the better the speaker, the worse my eating because I think I was like, I so wanted to have what they have, but I just didn't know how to do it. And over the years, you know, I met people from all walks of life in the program. Different genders, ethnicity, religion, profession. And there is only one thing that those people who had what I want had in common. And when I say had what I want, when I was in my late 20s, all I wanted is to have a thin body. But in my 50s, what I wanted was somebody who has a healthy relationship with people in their lives, with their body, and with food. And, and those people who had what I want across all those states and different programs only had one thing in common. They were willing, just willing, to be on a spiritual path. That's the only thing they had in common. And I was not willing to be on a spiritual path because I grew up, you know, my mother lost seven brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces in the Holocaust. And as far as she was concerned, there is no God. We never went to temple. We never, there was no, we couldn't even mention the word God at home. So for me, when I went to meetings in all those places, you know, I would hear people talk. But when the word God came up, a door closed in, in front of me and I heard the rest, but not that. And then I had my own little miracle. I read a book that is an outside program book, so I won't mention it. But it was a, the book was written by a spiritual leader, a religious leader, who lost his little kid to a horrible disease. And he says in the book that his whole faith was questioned when his own child got sick. And he said that what helped him is, is accepting the notion that when bad things happen, God cries. And suddenly, it shifted everything for me. Because, yes, the Holocaust was horrible, but God cried when it happened. People die in horrible ways, you know, in every day. I mean, in accidents. In, but it's not God doing it. God cries when it, ha- when it happens. And that helped me open my heart to a spiritual path. And and that started my abstinence. I mean, I've been abstinent now, so I've been in program over 35 years, and I'm abstinent now eight and a half years, and it's only because I became willing to, to be on that spiritual path. And as I said, when I started, my abstinence is far from being perfect. The only thing that is perfect and black and white is that in eight and a half years, I did not have any dessert. And when I say dessert, dessert means anything that can come on in, a, in a restaurant on the menu in the dessert. <laughs> so my, the yogurt I have have sugar, but you'll never see yogurt, regular yokle yogurt in a restaurant on the dessert menu. But I didn't have any cakes or cookies or cupcakes or ice cream or anything like that. That's the only thing that's black and white. But with the rest, I still, you know, trudge my road. And I ask God for help, and when I do ask God for help, miracles happen in my life. You know, I never exercised, and I really wanted to incorporate exercise into my life, but every time I started, I would stop after a few weeks. I joined gyms, nothing. And then, about seven years ago, I started praying, and I said, God, just grant me the willingness to be willing to move more. 
and find a way that I will enjoy. And I said it for like two years. And I'm now going to a pool, it's been five years, three to four times a week. Five years, that's already a habit. I mean, it's not like I'm trying it. And the, the people in the pool know me. And if I don't show up, I get a phone call. You know, it's like, it's a miracle. I mean, it's just really something that happened, you know, as a result of prayer. Am I always willing to ask God for help? No. As you heard at the beginning, you know, on Thursday, I asked God for help. And I was sitting in this big party with people drowning in food, and I didn't even care. I got engaged in a conversation, and I had my salad. Was I willing to ask God for help last night with the gluten-free matzah? No. I was alone at home. Not alone. My partner was there. And, I mean, and then when I finished, I didn't eat dinner. That was my dinner. And I said, I feel so shitty. I mean, I think I shouldn't share tomorrow. And she said, you've come such a long way. And if you think about where you are right now, I mean, so yes, you had those matzah, but that was your meal. You didn't go out and binge. And I remember years of starting with something and then going to my, you know, I don't know the language of drugs because I never took drugs, but to to my place where my drugs were delivered to this little... 7-Eleven where I would get my, you know, cupcakes and ice cream and bars and put them all in a brown bag and bring them home and eat until I pass out. And then wake up the next morning drunk and cancel all my commitments and not go to important meetings. And in the last eight and a half years, I showed up. I didn't miss one thing. I remember being in the university in my undergraduate and having my final and I'll never forget it I came to the um, to the room and there was a sign that due to an emergency the test was postponed in two hours the teacher will be there at let's say it started at 11 it said it will be at 1 so I had two hours to kill and that's after studying for days and I went to the cafeteria and I started binging so badly that I couldn't take the test and I had to graduate a year later so, so that's this disease. So yes, I had the five matters yesterday, and I'm admitting it, I think for the tenth time, I can now stop and forgive myself. But, but I, I, that's it, I'm here and I'm showing up, and I'm going to have a good day. So it's really, for me, mostly about asking God for help, giving service, I think that the people that I sponsor help me stay in program and give me more than I give them. And my service also changed over the years depending on where I am in my life. When I started being abstinent eight and a half years ago, I really was reluctant going to meetings. So I was a secretary of six phone meetings at 9 p.m. every night. And it was amazing because these were the times I wanted to eat and here I was in a meeting, clothing optional, <laughs> and uh, for, for those who are listening on the podcast, I'm fully dressed, so, it, and I was on the phone every single night, five, five meetings a week, facilitating and getting speakers I didn't share, I just took care of the meeting, and, and that was, you know, that saved me. Oh, right now, I'm a sec- co-secretary of a, a great little meeting, and... And I work the steps all the time. It's been 30 years. 
all the time. I'm now in step three again, and I'm working the traditions with my sponsor and with the sponsee. Not my sponsor. The, the steps with my sponsor, the traditions I'm working with a program friend and with a sponsee. So I'm constantly staying very engaged and involved in the program and asking God for help and giving service whenever I'm asked. Thank you. This is time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If being, if being recorded, please remember that if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, you exhibited self-forgiveness during your share about what you ate last night. Uh, I assume that sharing is your only tool for self-forgiveness. Can you talk about your tools for self-forgiveness? Yes. So my tools for self-forgiveness are through my connection with my higher power. I ask in prayer to be forgiven. And the best forgiveness tool for me is to, to take an action that is an action of kindness towards myself. And that's how I forgive myself. So by having this morning a beautiful abstinent meal and planning a beautiful abstinent lunch, I'm forgiving myself. Because I think my relapses were because of self-punitive actions. So I ate those, okay. If eat tomorrow, I'm going to really eat the real stuff because that's not what I really like. But now it's not about that. I overate, then I need to move forward and I need to be kind to myself. And I also, you know, I, I work with parents and children, so I always have this vision in my mind of a little child. And I think, if your little child made a mistake, would you, and came to you and said, Mommy, I made a mistake, you know, I, I, whatever. Would you then slap them? Or would you then say, honey, I'm so proud of you that you were able to recognize that you made a mistake. So it's all about forgiving that little child inside of us. And one more thing, I had once a sponsor that when I asked her, I called her and I said something and she said, how old is that kid, that part in you that you're talking about? And I said, four. She said, leave her in daycare and come over. <laughs> so, so, yes. Yes. Thank you so much for your share. Um, do you have like a regular meditation practice? Sure. If I have a regular meditation or prayer practice. Yes. Every morning, four times a week, when I'm in the pool and I... I go back and forth, I pray, I pray to God the whole time. And I have a little tiny cute story. There is a song in Hebrew about a woman praying to God who is hiding behind a cypress tree. And when I swim in the morning, there is a cypress tree at the end of the pool. So every morning, you know, I, in Hebrew, I pray to him in Hebrew, I meditate in English. He's bilingual. So I, when, I, when, I, when I go back and forth, I say the parts of that song, and I say, God, I know you're hiding behind the cypress tree. Help me be willing to be kind and loving to myself one more day. 
and thank you for my willingness to be mobile. And then when I come home, after I shower, before I go to work, I set up a timer and I meditate. And I've been meditating now for five years every single day, but progress not perfection, I meditate for four minutes. So it's not 20, it's not 40, but it's every single day, including times that I was in hotel rooms or times that I was anywhere. And when I leave the house without meditation, which maybe happened a handful of times, I feel less grounded, I feel more all over the place, and I feel more anxious. So that's my practice. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, so how much do you share... Um, the crazy talk in your head with others, and in which ways do you do that? Like, so when there's those negative thoughts, when there's those, you know, things that you kind of are shaming yourself, or the way that you kind of talk to yourself, do you share that in which, you know, in which ways? So the crazies in my head is not that. I have another crazies in my head, which is I tend to catastrophize. And what I mean by catastrophizing is that I am I'm always worried about a catastrophe that can happen. That's the crazy in my head. Now, part of it comes from growing up with a mother who lost her entire family in a day. So a catastrophe happened. So it was real. And I grew up, you know, getting it in, in breast milk. It was part of my, my, my makeup. So I realized with my therapist that when I became abstinent and stopped the binging and the numbing, the catastrophizing came up. So all the years that I was eating, it helped. I didn't catastrophize so much. So my work now is how do I deal with that crazy? So I'll give you two examples. One is funny, but it's not funny. I was anxious about sharing here the other day, and I felt lightheaded a little at work, and I said, oh my God, what happens if I get a stroke? while I share. So it's funny, but it's not funny. So what I said to myself was, number one, you are three blocks from a teaching hospital. (laughs) Number two, you're in a temple, your house of faith. And number three, you're with people who care about you. So if you get a stroke, you are in their hand and the hospital's hand. And I moved on. I didn't engage in the thought. And then I had another thought, another, I was in the beginning of the week, I was talking to my son and I was worried about a choice he made. And I went in my head to the worst case scenario. And what I had to do is to set up a timer for three minutes and sit and, and say, okay, I'm catastrophizing now, but my son is okay, he's perfectly fine, and I'm okay right now, and I need to stay in the moment. So the idea is for me not to engage, in a way, feed that monster. Because if I would feed that thought, oh my God, I'm lightheaded, it might be a stroke, I should go and call the doctor. I should like feed it, it becomes bigger. But if I stop it right away and focus on the moment, and in the moment everything is fine, then I can move on. So those catastrophizing thoughts are not taking over now. They keep coming, they're very intrusive and they are in, in, intrusive in my daily life a lot, but I am talking about it to myself mostly. I am meditating, and I try not to engage. And if I'm at home, I share them with my partner, who is very good in helping me ground. Yes. 
I mean, I, I think it would be better to talk about it after the meeting because it's the, in the, yes, yes. I, I, I'm, I'm a member now of a congregation and I go to temple and I, I, I love it. And yet I think that my higher power that is developed and, 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 in the, and nurtured in this program has nothing to do with, with that religion. It's more like a spiritual universe. Yes. How did program help you come out? How did program help me come out? So, I came out 16 years ago, and I'm abstinent eight. So I don't think it was program. I think it was therapy, and it was just. I don't know, you know, it's interesting because, again, I don't know how relevant it is to sharing here, but I don't feel I ever came out because I was never in a closet. I just discovered that beautiful part about me, and when I fell in love with that person, I just went along with it and realized that I'm home. <laughs> but it wasn't like struggling all my life with, with being closeted and then coming out. So that's my story. I want to ask it in a different way. <laughs> from going from having a husband and children, switching to having a partner instead, how did it affect your mind and your food? Although you were not in the program, but I'm sure it had affected. So, in my case, I don't think it affected it. My binges were bad before and my binges were bad after. And I became abstinent eight years ago, unrelated to that process. But I think that being at peace with who I am and feeling like I'm living a life of honesty and integrity and kindness is what affects my food. But that element is just one little element. I think that the way my food was affected is only in one area. My children had a hard time as the process happened. And my daughter said one line that summed it all. She said, in this freakish family, the only thing left for me is to date Siamese twins and marry one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that was her line. But today, I mean, my kids were all home, you know, recently, and they are begging us to get married. Begging us. I mean, they adore you know, my partner. So, it's like, but it was a hard process. And during that time, she said that line that was funny, but you can imagine there were a lot of tears that preceded that line. And I think for my son it was hard because he was a young teenager, and here his mommy is saying that she really likes women and not men, and he's a man. So there was a lot of anger towards me. And so that time I reached out to food and it affected my binging and yes, yes. But generally, I mean, as I said, that living the life I live today and the relationship they have with me and with her is beautiful. So, yes. Okay, after him. Say it again. Honesty, integrity, and kindness. Mm -hmm. Lisa. Thank you so much, Ziva. Um, when you were eating the matzah, 
were you alone and how did you stop? I was alone and then my partner came home and saw me with the matzah in my hand and she said, what are we doing for dinner? Because Fridays many times we go out and I said, my dinner is over but I will sit with you, I'll help you prepare your dinner and I'll sit with you because I, I'm not eating anymore and I was very... and she said, why do you look so upset? And I said I had those matzahs and, and then she said, can you forgive yourself? And I, I, what I did is I went and I emailed my sponsor who is right now in New York and I let her know what I did and she responded right away and she said, thank you for your honesty and, and that's it. But it was clear to me that, and that's happening in the last eight years many times, that this is an episode that I wish will never happen. And I wish my story was a story of really doing it perfectly. But I am not, it doesn't evolve anymore into a binge. And it doesn't take me out to get the sugar. That's re- removed. So, I don't know, does it answer your, okay. Yes. Uh, thank you, Viva. Um, my question is, it's still on the same vein, but what, kind to, what came to the forefront for me was um, the story of having the five matzahs, so now I'm not going to have dinner. And so my question is, um, um, you have forgiven yourself, but the, was that punitive to not have another me- the actual meal? No. Okay. Thank you. No, it wasn't punitive at all. I was just so full okay. that I couldn't eat anymore. It wasn't punitive. And you know, what I could do in my 20s, I can't do in my 60s. So, maybe in my 20s, that will be just a appetizer. But in my 60s, that was a dinner. It was, I, I felt really, I couldn't put anything else. Nothing punitive. Yes. You know what? It's a very sad thing because we joined away together and she was so successful and doing so well. And then I moved here and every time I go to Israel, she's the first person I call after I see my sister. And she's in the disease. And you know, this program is not for people who need it. It's only for people who want it. Want it and are willing to do the work. It's a lot of work. It's worth it, but it's a lot of work. John? Thank you, Ziva. Thank you for mentioning uh, being a sponsor. How do you work with your sponsors? Do you have a more hands-off or hands-off? With my sponsor or my sponsee? My spon- with my sponsees. So, I believe that in this program there is a parallel process between how you work and how you work with sponsees. So, I don't talk to my sponsor every day and I don't talk to my sponsees every day, but I'm available for them every day. So, I, I do communicate with them and I do talk usually, you know, within a week, few times and we email. But when there is a crisis, they reach out to me and I'm available anytime. So, and that's how I work with my sponsor. And I think people who, let's say, have a regular time that they call their sponsor every day and that works for them, require that from their sponsees. It's very parallel. So for me, 
I work with my sponsees the same way I work with my sponsor. And the most important thing, we are always engaged in working the steps or traditions. And then Carol, yes. You said you came in with uh, not even hearing the God word. What's your concept of God today? So God today is this beautiful, loving, embracing, I don't know if it's universe or it's in me, but it's this power, this energy, that when I reach out to help, I get it. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like it's inside of me, sometimes I feel like it's outside, but it's just this embracing, loving, and kind energy. That's my definition. Carol? Um, thank you, but trying to figure out how to word this. I don't know if your mom is still around, maybe she's not, but did you ever did you ever struggle to uh, own your spirituality in the faith of people, your mom or others who just really thought that was a, a dumb thing or a, you know like like did not? Did you ever have to justify it? How did you come to terms with that? So. Unfortunately, my mom passed away 15 years ago, and my process started nine, so I never had to do it. But I know today that the reason that I was able to heal my relationship with her inside of me is because I have a God. So it didn't happen by me having to justify, but I had so much anger towards her because of all the years that now I know as an adult I have empathy and compassion to who she was, but as a child, you know, it was hard growing up with a mom that never smiled, with a mom that was so depressed, that was not able to, to ever, you know, smile or participate or in anything. Now I know why, but I couldn't as a little kid, and I grew up really with rage at her. And the fact that I, I developed so much kindness to her in the last three years of her life. I was in Israel three, four times a year massaging her and and doing things for her. It's all because of God. So in a way the answer is yes, but it didn't happen by openly justifying anything. It's just by my actions. Yes. So if you saw my pictures, you saw the ups and downs. So I always worked the steps. From the day I arrived in this country. In Israel we didn't work them, but here. So I worked the steps and I gave away probably 10 or 15 four-step inventories. So I always worked the steps and I always was involved in it. But I think that the depth of how I did it changed with time. At the beginning, it was very, like, manual, you know. I did it, but I didn't really, I didn't go deep. I wasn't present. I wasn't emotionally as engaged. So, you know, but yes, I did work it while I was binging, when I wasn't abstinent, and in abstinence. I was thinking there is no question. Is there anything I didn't say that I want to say? You know, you leave a meeting, but there is nothing. Yes. Oh, five minutes. Yes. Um, did you ever think about, okay, you planned for the party. You were going to have all this food. You went to God and said, thank you so much. But then, because you were successful with this, did you ever think about when you went home, that's why I had to have those, the stress of accomplishment? 
Yes, so this is a great question because prior to those nine years, that was how I lived my life. I'm successful now, so I'm going to reward myself tomorrow or tonight or in the next meal. But that mindset changed completely with working the steps and enlarging my spiritual life. So right now when I have a successful meal, I just feel grateful that I don't feel at all deprived. You know, somebody, my partner as a matter of fact, said something that I love. She said, nobody ever left a big party and said, I wished I ate, I ate all the desserts. <laughs> right? Nobody. Nobody. And it's true. I don't have anymore, you know, that feeling of needed to reward myself. I have a very deep gratitude when I make it through an event without hurting myself because I don't see it anymore as a reward I see it today as really something that damages my body yes um, how do you take program with you when you go to restaurants and when you travel okay so as you heard in the beginning my, I, I don't have a rigid program I don't eat desserts but my meals I would say that, and don't ask me where the number is coming from, but I think that 87% of the time, my meals are beautiful vegetables and protein and some carbs. And 13% of the time, I would choose to order the pasta in a restaurant. So, I mean, the last time I had pasta was maybe four months ago. But, so I do, wherever I go, I can have the vegetable and the fruit and the protein. And if I'm in the 13%, I can order, you know, something else. But I don't, you know, I don't have a rigid program, so it's never a problem. Want another question? Sure. Back to the <laughs> <laughs> I should have brought it and passed it around as a sampling. <laughs> I think it's, an, it's an important moment. Um, years ago in program, I heard people talk about if you go off your food plan and go back to a meal no matter what, you know, it right. makes sense from you. There's so much, it's really about forgiveness. Right. And also, I've never heard anyone in program say I was full. <laughs> That's so, and obviously, you're full with something else. You're allowing yourself to be full. So, that how do you forgive yourself? How how do you do that? How do you how do you say this is enough? I mean, and, and not not say I have to have my my meal now that I've now that I've um, eaten five months. Right, but let's divide it between physical, emotional, and spiritual. Physically, I was full. I was full physically. And as I said, my body today, it's not what it was when I was in my 20s. In my 20s, I could eat a lot. And now, when I eat less, I get full physically. So that's physical. Emotionally, I was very upset with myself. And there was the voice in me that said, you're doing it the day before you are leading the kitchen sink and becoming a podcast? I mean, what? I was emotionally not nice to myself. The spiritual part is the part that brought in the forgiveness. And that said, you know what? It's progress, not perfection. And you were kind to your body by stopping. And I planned my food for today. And I asked God to help me forgive myself. So, it's, you know, and I had the dream. That, were you here? Yes. 
that everybody left because they didn't want to hear me. So it shows that emotionally there was not a lot of forgiveness because... So it's a process that's combining physical, emotional and spiritual. And I just want to say that those podcasts are so cool. I was in a meeting in Cambridge and I shared and this woman walked over to me and she said, I've been in relapse for a long time and I keep listening to your podcast. And I recognized your accent. And it was like, it's just so cool that I listen to people from all over the world and people can listen to us. It's really great service. I think, right? That's it.